All right, so where do we start? Well, with the Advent conspiracy, uh, it, it, it speaks of starting with um, worshiping fully. But how do we do that? How do we worship fully? Uh, I, I believe that we worship fully by um, having a correct perspective on who we are and who God is. And, and that often gets really distorted. And so what we're going to do this morning is try to unwrap that a little bit and try to fix that maybe. And, uh, and, and, and it's going to involve us going a little, a little deep, getting a little honest. But 11 o'clock, you can handle that because you've been up a little longer than most people who come in here. And so you, you're, you're ready for this. Um, I, I would say that the, um, the idea behind this really uh, goes all the way back to, uh, I don't know, the Fox News Channel maybe. Because uh, I, I don't know what, how you feel about O'Reilly or the O'Reilly factor. But what I'm going to encourage you to do is enter the no-spin zone with me. Now, O'Reilly's like an independent, right? He says he's not really Alan, Alan Combs. He's not really Sean Hannity. He, he's somewhere in the middle. And, and in the middle there, he says, I'm going to, to give you no spin. I'm going to give you just the facts of, 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 of what the day looks like. And whether or not we believe he does the correct job of that or not, what I'm going to invite us to do is as best as we can enter into that no spin zone of saying, this is who I am and this is who God is. And as a result of those two realities, I'm going to be capable of worshiping God fully. And what worshiping God fully means is I'm not going to see worship as just a service that I come to, but a life that I live. Now, we know that politicians, they need, they, they need spin doctors, right? They need to live in the spin zone, especially when you start to look at some of the comments that they make over time. Uh, uh, Nixon said this, I would have made a good pope. Obama on the campaign trail said, um, I've been to now 57 states. I think I have one left to go. Remember Dan Quayle? He needed a spin doctor. He said, I love California. I practically grew up up in Phoenix. Some geography issues with these people. And, you know, your friend and mine, the mayor that we've all come to love over time, Marion Barry, Some of you are laughing before you even hear the quote. Said this, outside of the killings, D.C. has one of the lowest crime rates in the country. He he needed a spin doctor. (laughs) Politicians have spin doctors. They typically call handlers. They enter into the no spin or the spin room right after, you know, all 48 of them are there on the debate stage. And they're giving their perspective, and inevitably what happens is something comes out of their mouth that really does resemble their heart. But they're not real sure they want everybody to know it. And so they've got people that are trying to fix it. Sometimes they try to fix it. Movie stars have spin doctors they call publicists. Um, News stations have spin doctors they call reporters. Anyway, there's a lot of spinning that goes out there. There was one guy in particular, I don't know if you remember this guy's name, Tony Hayward. Some of you, many people in our church are in the oil industry, and you know when you hear that name automatically, wow, that was the CEO, right, of BP. Uh, he, 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 he sent out a signal that maybe he needed a spin doctor when he said after the oil catastrophe that happened in the Gulf that BP was responsible for, that he was ready for it to be over so he could really get his life back. 
And everybody thought, well, that's a tad, a tad bit insensitive since you've, you know, created this catastrophe for the entire Gulf Coast, messed up thousands and thousands of people's lives, cost multiple millions of dollars. And crazy enough, even his spin doctors couldn't fix the situation because three months later he was fired. We have these lies that we kind of step into that we allow the spin doctor in us to perpetuate. A couple of the big ones. One of them is, I'm really good enough. I am good enough that I don't even need God. Another one is, I am so messed up, God would never want me. And whether or not you're on this side of the equation or that side, somewhere in there, we often will land. And those two perspectives about who we are fuel all kinds of other lies. There's, there's lots of lies that we tell ourselves, right? Lies like, well, I don't have the time, and that's because we're too busy. Or, I've got plenty of time, and that's fueled by procrastination. Or, well, no one's really going to see me so that I can hide the habit. Or, well, God really understands this is just the way I am so that I can protect the way I live. Or, God, really, you must understand, I, I just had really good intentions so that I can keep talking the way that I talk about that person. Or, you know, I'm too old, or I'm too young, and these lies that we tell ourselves. But this one, this one, this one side that says, I'm really a good person in The Guardian. There was an article that came out last month by a writer named George Monboyet. And here's what he wrote. The, The article is entitled, We're Not As Selfish As We Think We Are. He wrote about how we really are a really good people. And one of the things that he stated that fueled or propelled or pumped up his argument was that 78% of the people that he surveyed said that they believed that other people were more selfish than they were. See the fallacy there. No, we're, we're good. We are good people. That foundationally is rooted, we could say, all the way back to the British monk Pelagius, who said what? He said, essentially, we're all good. But I would take it all the way back further, beyond the garden. We can go all the way back to the heavens where Lucifer was the lead worshiper and then decided, you know what? I'm the lead worshiper, but I'm as good as God. I mean, I I can be God. I should be God. I'm the one that should be worshipped. I don't need him. I don't need this job. You see, this goes way, way back. This idea that we're not real sure that we even need God. And so what happens is we create these spin doctors. And and, and really, if we get down to the nitty-gritty, the spin doctor in us is the flesh. It is. So we can call it what it is. Ephesians calls it that way. Galatians calls it that way. In Ephesians 4.21 it says, Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. That... Those words are written for believers. 
who have come face to face with Jesus already and have been transformed. They are new creation and yet are still holding on to the old. And Paul says, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. Here, here's what you are called to do. You are called to put on the new nature. Galatians 5, 17, it's not on the screen, but I want you to listen to this because it describes this battle. It's the same battle that Paul talked about when he said, I'm doing what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I should do. And in Galatians 5, he says, the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. And then he follows that later, a couple of verses later, by saying, so be led by the spirit. Ah, there's a battle. There's a battle in us. There's a battle in us that has our flesh wanting to maintain the appearance that our lives are really not out of control, that they're not unmanageable, that we really do have it all together, and quite possibly for some of us that we don't really need God. Or maybe that he would never want us. The flesh leaves us frantic for approval, overcommitted, often unfulfilled and unhappy. The flesh in us is preoccupied with appearance. You see, that's why we get really weirded out when we step on the scale in January after Halloween and Thanksgiving and Christmas. And the spin doctor starts to spin because we are really concerned about where appearance is at this point. The spin doctor is in us, or the flesh in us, demands attention. We crave compliments. Appearance drives every choice, every picture we post, every friendship we choose. And although you may think, oh, that's a great message to say to adolescents, the truth is, we, the grown adolescents in the room, are oftentimes just as fueled and driven by the flesh. The flesh attempts to gain identity through achievements. Look at what I posted. Look at who I'm hanging out with. Look at what I'm doing now. Look at where I am. Look at where my job has taken me. Look at what the house is that I have. Look at the car that I own. The spin doctor or the flesh is incapable of true intimacy in any relationship. Why? Because we become self-absorbed. So we get into the scripture and we look at 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, and it feels foreign to us. And the reason why is because deep down inside we wonder, well, what's in it for me? The spin doctor rejects time alone with God. Why? Because when we get alone with God, here's what God does. In those moments of solitude, in prayerful communication with God, he drives out. Any identity that we've created for ourselves, And he says, no, here's who you are. Here's who you are. But you know, that's uncomfortable for us. It's uncomfortable because we've spent a lot of time creating this facade. I mean, we're in our adult years now, right? And it would be very uncomfortable for us to actually enter into a small group and get transparent and honest and vulnerable and let people see what we really feel about ourselves And maybe even the questions as an adult that we have about God. I believe what God calls us to is to enter into the no spin zone. And allow Jesus to meet our spin doctor, the flesh. Now the crazy thing is to worship fully is to do so 24-7. And what that means is we have to bring that encounter to light every day. 
Galatians speaks about that encounter in 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How do you view yourself? So far away from God that he doesn't want anything to do with you? Or God is not needed because I've got it all taken care of. I can pay for it. I can handle it. I can do it. I'll call you when I need you. See, either way, it keeps us from worshiping fully and being the people that he's created us to be. Well, that has to do with the deception of who we are. We'll come back to that in a minute. But I want us to look at a quote that kind of connects these two problems. The one of not really knowing us well enough, but also not really understanding fully who God is. There's a quote in The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer that goes like this. It says, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Hmm. So in our own identity... What's so very important is that it truly is tied to who God is. Well, who is God to you? That's the tie. Who is God to you today? See, creator, transcendent one, beyond all scope and limitations, able to do anything placing our faith in him for things that would be impossible for us to achieve on our own. Is that the God we woke up with this morning? Is he the God that Jesus spoke of whenever he was walking along this earth as Father, Abba, Father? The one who says, I am here to be the Father for the fatherless. Is that the God that we know? Or is the God that we know Santa Claus God? The God that gives us gifts and really is checking the list to see if we've been naughty or nice. And so what we inevitably do is we leave this platter of cookie-shaped activities on our table. And we say, okay, well, here's, here's the cookie of my church attendance, God. Santa God, and here's the cookie of my uh, service to you, God, because I did go into the nursery twice this semester. And I gave you out of my excess, God. And so surely, surely this plate of cookies winds up setting me in good favor with Santa God. And he gives me what I need. But what happens when that doesn't happen? What happens even as church people who get so misguided sometimes we do because we think we're doing all the right things and all of a sudden everything comes crashing down. And the person that we've given our lives to on this earth turns around and says, I don't want to be with you anymore. Or our kids reject God. Or our grandchildren don't want to have anything to do with us. Or illness strikes. And all of these things begin to pile on. And as they pile on, we begin to go, whoa, wait a minute. What's going on here? Who is this God that would allow these things to happen to me? And if we're not careful, 
it does begin to skew us and then our perception of God because we think, well, you know, maybe I do deserve it. I mean, after all, I sure have failing him an awful lot. Why would he want to bless me? Why would he want to give me good things? This is just revenge, isn't it, God? I mean, you're just doing this. This is judgment on me. You're not really that happy with me at all. Matter of fact, you probably don't have anything to do with me, God. And you know what? I don't blame you. I wouldn't have anything to do with me either. And then we get into the comparison trap. Well, I mean, I see them and they're teaching a Bible study and they're an elder and they're a pastor on stage and they're worshiping God as a, and, and we're blowing out the candle so we don't all get on fire. And we get into this comparison trap and it just fuels this idea that we have that we're not enough. And we hear the voices, God doesn't want to use you. You've gone too far this time. You'll never change. It's too late. Why don't you just stick with the status quo? It'd be so much easier. Why don't you stop dreaming about things that might be deeper or more meaningful or more significant? You know, you're as good a parent as you're going to ever be. You're as good a grandparent as you're ever going to be. You're as good a worshiper as you're ever going to be. You're as good a follower of Jesus as you can be. Why don't you just be satisfied right now with who and what you are? Because it's not going to get any better than this. And we might not say it, but it's so very easy for us to live that out. And so the real question that enters into our minds is what do we do with that then? Do we just then dull those voices by jumping into addictions, whether it's shopping or medicated drugs or, you know, whatever? Or do we bring the spin doctor of our flesh into the presence of Jesus and say, no, 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 I'm not going to allow my perspective of God to skew my perspective on the world and who I am and who he is. I want a right perspective of God. I want to know him for who he is. I want to know him as the one who loves me and created me and is Fearfully and wonderfully as made as I am, I am still in desperate need of him. That takes us to this picture that I brought with me. It's a picture I've had for years now. It's a picture of dancing bears. Before you make fun, I'll just tell you a little bit about the dancing bears which weren't dancing too well a couple of nights ago, but that's beside the point. That's a Baylor football quote for those of you who need to get clued in. These dancing bears were on a photo on the front page of the Baylor Alumni Magazine several years ago. And I remember looking at this picture thinking, that is so cool. And then I'm in the mall one day. It was the kind of malls they used to make where you were inside, away from the rain, and you could go to all the stores. You remember those? And there was a Kirkland's. And I walked in, because I'm a guy and I eat quiche and I can go to Kirkland's and I'm okay with that. (laughs) And I saw this hanging on the wall. And I thought, you know, I would love that picture. It's dancing bears. But it's 240 bucks. And I'm a youth pastor. And Holly and I need to eat. And so I passed that up. 
And I came back a few months later, and it was half off. Please don't make any correlation to this in Baylor football at this point. And I passed it up again because 120 was just too much. And I went back a couple of months later, true story, and it was in the clearance section. Again, be careful where your mind goes. And I thought, I'm going to buy this because clearance is 50 off. It's now 60 bucks. I can do this and eat. So I took it to the counter. True story. And the lady in front of me said, well, this is a good day for you because, you know, everything on clearance is half off. I got this for 30 bucks. (laughs) And I've kept it in my office over the years. Holly says I can't keep it here now because it doesn't go with everything, and I trust her. So it's in my garage where many things as men we keep because we can't put it anywhere else. Just, that's just how it is. It makes sense. And, uh, and, you know, this picture reminds me of a lot of things. I used, to, I, used to, I used to laugh about it with kids. I'd say, you know, this is really, I mean, you think this is because I'm a Baylor bear. Actually, this is all the purposes of the church here. I mean, I see these bears, they're worshiping, and there's discipling going on, and evangelism, and ministry, and I mean, there's a lot going on here. But you know what's more meaningful and more significant about this picture than anything else? It's the fact that I bought it as is, at a discounted rate. And when I look at this picture, I'm reminded that Jesus paid full price for me, as is. And he paid full price for you, as is. And that's how we can view ourselves. That, you know, we're fearfully and wonderfully made, but we are also desperately needy, and even in that as-is condition. Because, you know, this frame was all beat up. I mean, this, was, this deserved to be in the clearance section. And it got restored over the years, and then we moved a couple of times, and it's gotten beat up again. But in that as-is condition, with chunks out of the frame of my life, God said, I choose you, and you're worth my son. And that's a perspective that we can walk in and worship fully in. Because that's a God that says, I am interested in moving from not only your creator to being your father. For you to be a child, an adopted child of mine, that imagery is all throughout Scripture. That's who God is. Yes, he is almighty. Yes, he is holy. Yes, he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Yes, he is before and after and will always be. But he also invites us into an intimacy with him. Tied to the intimacy that a father was created to have with their children. And says now in that, and we find it all throughout scripture. We find it in Psalm 68 where he is described as a father to the fatherless. We find it in Psalm 103, where it says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. We find it in Mark 14, where Jesus gets down on his knees and says, Let this cup pass from me if it's your will. But before that statement, he cries out to him, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. 
In the book of Romans, Paul says you should behave instead like God's very own children adopted into his family, calling him father, dear father. In 1 John 3, verse 1, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. God, who is father, says you are my sons and daughters if you enter into this relationship reconciled by my son on the cross. If you enter that relationship and you stay focused on who I am and who you are, then you can worship fully. And in that, here's what it takes. It takes 1 John 1, 8 and 9. It says that what I have to do is I have to step into this relationship with him and recognize how very important it is that I not deceive myself. But instead, verse 9, confess my sin. Confess the deception that's in my life. Knowing that he is faithful and just and will forgive and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And I desperately need that. God's love letter is filled with this message of compassion. You know, as we enter into Advent and we start to worship fully, it fuels everything else. It fuels our ability to spend less and give more and love all. Because you know what happens? We begin to look more and more like God. And His compassionate heart becomes my compassionate heart and yours. And I begin to see people the way he sees people. And I begin to see the temporariness of this life the way that he does. What does it take? It takes me daily entering in. Matter of fact, last verse we'll look at. Colossians 3, verse 12. It says, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves. Okay, now that I am. In the grafted in adopted family of God. Here's what I am to do. I am to be clothed daily with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. I step into that. I step into that as I open up the word and follow what it says. I step into that as I step into the no-spin zone. And realize, I'm not going to live in the deceit of who I often believe I am. And I'm not going to live in the false ideas that I have about who God is. I'm going to live about, I'm going to live as what God says about both of us. One quote. Tenderness comes alive, Brennan Manning says, when we know someone we care about. It's just knocked out crazy about us. Just knowing that person is in the room gives us a strong sense of safety and courage. Our defense mechanisms, sarcasm, name dropping, self-righteousness, being impressive, simply fall away. We become more open, real, vulnerable, and genuinely affectionate. We grow tender. If you get convinced from the top of your cap to the soles of your slip-ons that your Abba loves, cares, and yes, even likes you, you'll start to experience a calm and tender compassion for yourself and I might add for others 
that changes, well, changes everything. He ends by saying these words, this is the work of a lifetime. It's the long, gradual process of being like Christ in the way I think, speak, and live each day. It is, as Henry Nouwen put it, pulling the truth revealed to me from above down into the ordinariness of what I am. In fact, thinking of, talking about, and doing from hour to hour. Christ in us. Working his truth into our life in the same way that Christ came into our world. Truth coming down into the ordinariness of a baby in a manger. And yet it changed everything. Has it changed everything for you? Will you pray with me? Father, may we step into the no-spin zone, not doctoring up our lives, but also not living in a false understanding of who you are. But instead, God, will you draw us into a deeper understanding this week? Of the tender, compassionate, forgiving, hope-giving God that you are. And Father, as we experience those truths of who you are, May we then live in it with your power, allowing who you are in us to impact those around us. God, thank you for receiving us in our as-is condition and for paying the ultimate price. God, may we walk away from there with deep gratitude, fueling us with worship-filled lives because of all you've done. We love you, God. Thanks for giving us this moment together. In Jesus' name.